Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Little Brother, Big God, part five of six, the sight of surviving sons. And we're looking at all that happens in chapters 44, 45, and 46. Pray with me if you would. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you and thank you for your word, the scriptures, the Holy Bible. We want to know it. We want to ingest uh, your word into our minds and hearts and be transformed from the inside out and bring you glory through it. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So a man asked me a question, which seemed friendly enough. I forget the context. Actually, a similar scene has happened in a lot of different contexts. Asking questions, one after the next, smiling, nodding, seeming to like my answers. And after all this, he said, thank you and congratulations, you passed my test. Now I have a pretty strong people-pleasing streak in me, so at first I felt like this must be good news. I was affirmed, right? I passed his test, but then the memory of it, after minutes turned to hours, kind of soured. Like, okay, there's something demeaning, or at least it felt demeaning to me, to being asked to pass someone's test. And the test giver is declaring himself or herself in power, and it's a one-way relationship with the involuntary test taker really gets nothing out of it. So not long after one of these incidents, I added a phrase to my pastoral palette that I use occasionally uh, when it's helpful. And I say it without hostility. Honestly, I say, look, I I don't want to pass your test. Sometimes I don't say it, but I think it. I, I don't care if I pass your test or not, I think. How can I help you instead? How can I serve you instead of please you? Now, thinking this is useful sometimes, in some occasions. The thing we're looking at today, the situation that we are reading about today, at the start of these three chapters we're looking at, starting in Genesis 44, is quite different. Joseph is the test giver in this situation, and he really was in power. He wasn't just posturing or pretending like somebody who might be important, like somebody does who might decide to test you or I. In Egypt, Joseph at this point really was the second only to Pharaoh. His brothers were the test takers, and they very much wanted to pass his tests. It's fair to say, based on Scripture, I think, that the thing they wanted most in life up to this point was to pass Joseph's tests. Because through a series of sinful missteps and mistakes, They have now found themselves begging a stranger who they do not know is their brother. They're begging a stranger for their lives and and for their father's heart. And they're in anguish. They're desperate. And they're going to get more desperate as time goes on. And in this account in Genesis, we have seen so far, and we see Joseph continuing to suffer some degree, pretty significant degree, of mental anguish, emotional breakdown. He ran out of options and ran out of the room in tears. This is hugely significant because Joseph represents the very best of us. Think of it. 
He's the strongest in every way, in every way that counts. Not counting Jesus, is there a better man than Joseph ever? Yet he shows us that sometimes the best of us are just as messed up or messed with as the rest of us. And it means that no one rises above their need for God. All need God to intervene and intercede. Even those proven to be holy, godly people like Joseph. They're still people. They still break because that's what people do. People break. Yeah. And they're still in need of, of being saved and gaining spiritual sight and insight that only the Spirit of God can give. Moses, David, Paul are on this list as well. Human authors of divine scripture who, in each case, proved themselves breakable and broken. With Moses and David, we have record of the wrong things they did in scripture. And with Paul, it's interesting because after he comes to faith, he says things like he's the greatest of all sinners, or he's a thorn in his side that God won't remove because God's grace is sufficient. So Genesis 44 puts us now in the scene, in the middle of Joseph testing and retesting his brothers. And now there's a fascinating question to ask here at this point. Was this Joseph's carefully considered strategy to restore his brothers and himself to his brothers? Or did it happen moment by moment? For Joseph, the way the scriptures make it feel if you just read them and you don't read the study notes or the commentaries. Sometimes you read the Bible, you get one thing, and then you read the study notes and commentaries and think, oh, that's what it says. <laughs> sometimes you get tired of that. I don't know about you, but I get tired of that sometimes. So, it, you know, what is it? Is it Joseph being proactive or is he reacting or is it a mix? It's awesome to think about. And it, we do have to think about it as we go through these words. So starting chapter 44, second half of verse 1, this is what uh, Joseph instructed his steward. Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. So we've already had... This, this thing with sacks and money, they brought money and it was put back in the sacks and now they've returned with the money that they didn't want put back in the sacks and they were afraid about that and the younger brother as instructed. So the next morning, right after they leave, Joseph says this to the same steward, up, follow after the men and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. So they respond to this, this accusation of the steward, uh, with great emotion. They protest, really. And they, they say this in, in, in uh, verse 8 and 9. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan, how then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. So always in Scripture you see people saying just a little too much, like 
don't say that because we all know what's happening. It's Benjamin that has the silver cup and they just said whichever one of the servants the, the cup is found with shall be the servant and, and, and now you know they, they realize what's going on. They're, they're upset. Uh, the steward's response, by the way, who's in on it, right? So the steward knows that they didn't steal all this stuff. So he's in on it too, and he says this in verse 10, Let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. So it's Benjamin. Oh no, this is not what they want. And they get upset and they tear their clothes, because that's what you do if you want to be biblical. Every time you get upset, you just rip, the, rip those clothes, you know, <laughs> right? That's what they do. And, uh, you know, this shows how upset. This is not what they want. They return to Joseph to plead with him. This is what they say. Joseph says this after they, they plead with him. He says, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Now, Joseph didn't do this, wouldn't do this, at least based on what we read. He wouldn't do this. However, this practice of divination would be part of the Egyptians, the bigwig Egyptians' gig. You know, that's part of what he would do. And so he's definitely, it's definitely a ruse. He, he's, he's definitely testing them, leading them somewhere. And here's the response from Judah. I put it in gray because we're in, we're, in, we're in troubled waters here. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. So this is interesting. What guilt is he talking about? Because he knows they're not guilty. Everybody really knows they're not guilty, but yet he confesses guilt. Looks like he's talking about what happened before. The, the overall guilt that they've been living with all these years after what they did to Joseph. Basically, that's how they felt all the time, and that's some of us here now. We feel guilty all the time. We know that there's something that has not been atoned for in our lives. And so Judah is confessing this. Who is Judah? The ancestor of Christ. Pay attention to that in all of this. And notice what he's doing. He's saying, well, you, you want to keep Benjamin, you, just, you keep us all. I'm not going back to dad without Benjamin. I'm not doing that. Well, Joseph, it's his game, his rules. Verse 17, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Trapped, cornered, Judah and the brothers are. And that's when we get this long, long speech from Judah. Again, the human ancestor of Christ. Takes up the rest of the chapter. And he tells Joseph everything that led up to this. A full confession emphasizing the painful impact of Benjamin not returning to his father. They didn't confess the crime. He didn't confess that. But he confessed the impact of what happened through the perspective of the father. He's been deprived and then he says this to finish up the chapter in verses 33 and 34. Now, therefore, please let your servant, 
Judah is saying this, remain instead of the boy, Benjamin, as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So this is Judah, who doesn't know he's talking to his brother, talking to his brother about his only full brother, Benjamin. And they're all concerned with the welfare of Jacob, who's also called Israel. And here he offers to take the place, Judah does, of Benjamin. I will take his place, said the ancestor to the one who took our place on the cross and paid our debt. Test passed. That's what you see here. The test is passed. The test is over. And that brings us to the next chapter and these verses. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who who stood by him. He cried, "Make, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Wow. Can you imagine it? Next verses. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. What a scene. And then we just want to camp out here for a minute, don't we? Powerful. It's hard not to get emotional reading this when you understand what it means. And it's more than just understanding the story by itself, isn't it? We're understanding what the story says about God and what the story says about what he wants for us in our lives. This this reconciliation. Reconciliation isn't always possible. Forgiveness is always commanded. Forgiveness takes one, that's you. You're to forgive, period. That means let go. That's what that word means. Reconciliation takes two. It's a different thing. But it is the goal. It is the the highest of goods. It's not always possible. It's not always recommended. There are different situations where that doesn't work. But in this situation, it happened beautifully. And the whole purpose of the Bible, the whole purpose of the cross, the whole purpose of salvation and redemption, all of it's being played out in this scene between brothers. You want to put a bookmark here because you've got the Gospels all here and the the Psalms and Job even illustrated by this one real-life scene, this one real-life healing of this one family by God. And listen to what he says next. His brothers, can you picture them there? They're, they're, They're stunned. I mean, they didn't expect it at all. That's the one thing we know as we read the story up to this point. They had no thought that this, this man with such power, was their little brother, their annoying, arrogant little brother 
that they wanted to kill, most of them, and a few of them stepped in and spared his life but had him sold as a slave. Now here he is. It's him. And uh, they were guilty, right? Judah said, uh, even though he knew he and his brothers weren't guilty of the crime they were presented with, he knew they were guilty anyway, just like so many of us do. We know that. And we try to hide from it. We, we try to paper over it with religion, that kind of thing. And the only solution to it is the gospel, a full-hearted receipt of the gospel. Receive. Hear him call to you. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened. What makes us weary? What makes us burdened? The, the physical hardship of our lives, most of our lives are not physically hard at all. Most of our lives are physically easy. We're soft, and our lives are soft. Our chairs are soft. Everything's soft. It's not hard at all. What's burdensome? What makes us weary? It's the things of the soul, the things of the heart, that, that guilt, that shame. Who takes that away? No one but Jesus. Does he take just some of it away? No, he takes it all away. Sets you free completely. Now the life story of each one of these brothers is completely rewritten. All the guilt, all the pain, all the justification, all the back and forth. You can just tell for years and years and years that what they did to Joseph, that was when they woke up in the morning, when they went to sleep at night, that was on their consciences. And now all that is different. All that changes. The meaning of all that pain changes. He wants to do the same thing in my life and yours. Amen? He wants to do the same thing in my life and yours. And Joseph, he's there. He's got all the power. There's obviously the presence of the Spirit of God in him. There's no vengeance. There's no... We look back now at the tests, and we don't know, did he plan them? Is he, is he a genius in that way? Or did he just respond emotionally? And is the genius really God's? Really, the genius is always God's. But how did it play out? Was Joseph, you know, this uh, strategic, you know, this intelligent in how he was dealing with his brothers? Or, or was he just submitted and, and in God's hands through it all? I think some of us will... will pick one side or the other of that, but in the end, it doesn't matter. God did what he did, and Joseph is who he is because he's in the hands of God. And he's able to, to say to his brothers, away from me, I never want to see you again. No, he doesn't say that. He says, come near to me. Come near to me. That's always the, the gospel call. Christ calling us to come near to him, and we call those far and away in our lives, come near to me. And Joseph sees them in their anguish and says these words. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. And we talk about forgiving ourselves. And sometimes I wonder, is there a warrant in Scripture for that phraseology? Like, well, I've got to forgive myself. Well, there, is, there it is right there. Joseph's saying, don't be unforgiving towards yourself. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, 
and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Amen? Amen. God used this. He's not saying that sin is okay, that what you did is okay. He doesn't say that. We, we always go for that. I want to just justify myself. I want to be right. It's so much better to be loved than to be right. And so many of us will, will, will die. We'll, we'll, we'll go to our deaths to be right. And it's, it's pointless. You can never attain that. You're loved. Loved. So he's not saying that sin is okay. He's saying that God is better than your sin. God is saying that through this. And God can make better what has been ruined by your sin. Of course, he does that. God has a plan, and you didn't mess it up because you can't mess it up. Amen. Amen. Yes, his sovereignty is our comfort. And that's part of the story. And these brothers and Joseph, they, they got here to this place where they passed the tests because of what God had done and what he had been doing all along. And Joseph went on to say this, He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. That's right over here. No, just kidding. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, so it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Ah, oh, that's the best. Hey, Amen. This is good stuff. Oh, that's what God is all about. That's what it's all about. The next verses tell of Pharaoh's and Egypt's excitement and the support, followed by the brothers' journey home with the good news. Yet here's how the father reacted. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, that's Jacob, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Jacob is a man who's been through a lot of tests. He's lived one long, tested life over and over again. 
we've read about his tests up to this point. And he has received and needed God's help. And so now he needs it and he receives it. Verse 46, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So you see a lot of things happening. You see a promise to a family. You see God's intimate care of individual relationships and brothers and this family. And you see God's care for the people, the nation. He's going to preserve the nation. And why is he doing that? To preserve the messianic line. And he's, he's working all these things out at the same time. That's how he works. Again, it's a great source of comfort for us. Because we're caught up in the weeds, tangled up in the troubles of our lives. We can't see but five feet in front of us like this morning with the fog. You know, even with the fog lifted physically, spiritually sometimes the fog seems to rarely lift. It's just fog all the time. We can't see what's there, but then the scriptures clear the fog for us. Look at the hand of God working behind the scenes, above and around all the things that are happening to us. He's keeping his promise. You can trust him over and over again. Scripture encourages us, exhorts us to trust God no matter what. That's really the, yeah. Sorry, I totally stepped on that. Over and over again, can I say it the same way? Over and over again, the Scriptures encourage us to trust God no matter what. There you go. We do applaud that. It's powerful stuff. So now, after this, we have lists of people and families, all who made their way to Egypt under Joseph's care. At the end of chapter 45, we see that, you know, Jacob hears that Joseph is still alive. Now, at the end of 46, he sees with his own eyes that Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. And it can happen. In my life, you know, I'm famous for telling the story about my dad, estranged for almost nine years, and then I saw him again. And, you know, I had, all, I had this whole story, this whole narrative of my life up to that point, of all these problems with my father, and, and it all changed. Like he really does go back in time and change what things mean when you see where he brings you. It's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. And it's a vision he wants you to have because maybe you're in the middle of it. And maybe you're a long way from this moment. Trust him that he will get you there. He will carry on to completion the good work he started in you. Whatever that is. Whatever family situation that you might be thinking of right now, whatever life situation, whatever disappointment, whatever thing is that you're guilty about that you've been hiding all these years and how 
well are you hiding that after all because it comes up all the time I just mentioned it and it came up in your conscience as I did I don't even know what it is but you do every day you do give that to God trust God with that he's going to work that out hand it over to him pass your test life is a test Lots of times it's a do-over, a retake, right? A stay after school and try again kind of retake. Some of us, that, that describes exactly what we're going through. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying again to pass the test. Yesterday at the wedding, I encouraged the couple. I got to do a wedding yesterday, beautiful thing. And I encouraged the couple that they keep doing what they were doing. They were looking in the scriptures. They were learning about each other. They, they were interested in the premarital counseling. It wasn't just a box they checked. You know, like so many couples, like, okay, premarital counseling. They were like, give it to us. We want everything we can have so that we pass the test. We, we want to we mean the words that we say in front of you. And it's a powerful moment. And that's, that's where all our hearts are. We want to pass the test. You know, maybe you have a test right now you're thinking of, you're in the middle of. Salvation inspires us to want to live our lives in a way that expresses our gratitude for God and pleases Him and passes our tests. We have salvation because Christ passed His tests. Unlike Joseph, he actually died on the cross, the most falsely accused and abused man in history. Think of that. And that's, it's not the only time in Genesis that this scenario uh, shows up. You see Abraham with Isaac, and Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac. And then you see God staying his hand, like, no, 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 no. Save that son. And then here again, Jacob thought, I've lost my son. And turns out, no, no, you didn't. But when it comes to the father and the son, our Father in heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, He did lose His Son. His Son did die. Yes, He rose again, but not before He died, all the way dead. And because He did, we have salvation. That's part of what we remember here. <laughs> Lord, we do applaud this, and we're so grateful. And... Um, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for, for passing the test on, on the cross. We know it was a test when we read about what you went through. We read about what the devil put you through. We read about uh, the, the tortures of crucifixion. And they weren't just the physical tortures for you, but the deep spiritual tortures that only you could experience because you were and are the Son of God. Lord, you, you did this for us. And so now set apart, set apart these elements for holy purpose, that they be to our faith, uh, your body broken, your blood shed. As the men pass uh, this, give us moments now, moments of reflection in Scripture where we think about our own lives, we think about uh, how we apply the truth of Scripture to our lives, how it matters that you paid for our sins on the cross. What the tests are 
that you're calling us to pass. Lord, in many cases, when we think about tests, many of us think about how we fail. I know that many of us have minds that seem to be adept at this, just wired to recall failure instantly. Our heart beat increases. We, we feel the, the stress of it. It's as fresh as if it was the first day we saw ourselves failing you like we did. Lord, take this from us. Help us to see how you have taken this from us. Help us to believe that your cross was effective for us. Thank you, Lord. Lord, you call us to forgive, and you fence the table, and you want us to discern the body. It means that we take this seriously. It means that we come to this table knowing what it means. And if we are called by you to, to, to not take of it today, it's not because we are not believers. It's because you are doing a work in us, causing forgiveness to occur in our hearts, causing maybe even reconciliation to follow that forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.